Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. Welcome to Probabilities. This is Richard A. Lupoff. Welcome to Cover to Cover. This is Richard A. Surrogate Lupoff. Welcome to Cover to Cover. This is Richard A. Lupoff. Welcome to Cover to Cover. This is Richard A. Lupoff. And so for many years began KPFA's half-hour literary show, co-hosted by Richard A. Lupoff, who died on October 22, 2020, after a short illness. Dick Lupoff, as he was known to friends and family and on the air, was a noted science fiction writer when he was invited by Lawrence Davidson and me to be the very first guest in 1977, along with another writer, Michael Curland, on an experimental hour-long science fiction show, Probabilities Unlimited. Within months, the show had become a regular half-hour fixture on the air, and within a year or so, Dick became an official co-host of the program and stayed that way for the next 20 years, even as the name changed from Probabilities to Cover to Cover. Dick Lupoff was part of science fiction fandom while still a teenager. He and his late wife, Pat, created a science fiction fanzine, Zero, which won a Hugo Award from the World Science Fiction Convention in 1963. His first book, a biography, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Master of Adventure, was published in 1965 and his first novel, One Million Centuries, two years after that. By the time he was interviewed on that first KPFA program, he had already written eight novels, all science fiction and fantasy, and by the time he left the program, He'd written several more science fiction, fantasy, and mystery novels, and one of the latter, The Radio Red Killer, was set in a radio station which bore a remarkable resemblance to KPFA. What made Dick Lupoff stand out as an interviewer was his vast knowledge of history, particularly pop literary history. His work finding and interviewing old-time pulp writers and authors can never be duplicated, but there was also pop culture, Hollywood, baseball, military history. There was so much that he could draw on for his questions. Over the course of the past few years, and in the coming years, more and more of those Probabilities interviews will be digitized and aired both on KPFA and his podcasts. Dick Lupoff may be gone, but his work in radio is still an ongoing project. I'm Richard Walensky on the Radio Walensky Podcast. When Probabilities settled into its first half-hour time slot, Tuesdays at 10.30 p.m. on KPFM Berkeley, the three of us, Richard A. Lupoff, Lawrence Davidson, and I, all decided to host a live, once-a-month book review program. At one point in the 1980s, science fiction and fantasy author Lisa Goldstein joined us, and later on, after Lawrence left the program, and the show moved on from science fiction and fantasy to mysteries and genre fiction, novelist Shelley Singer became part of the review team. And eventually it was just Dick and myself talking about books and what we were reading that particular month. The review shows became more sporadic when Dick left to pursue his writing and I took on the show myself and changed the name to Bookwaves, but they did continue for another few years. This particular review program, chosen at random, seriously at random, aired live on Thursday, July 23, 1992 at 11.30 a.m. 
and features Dick, Shelley, and me, with Shelley leading off the show with a review. I think the best way to appreciate Dick's work on the radio is in this context, talking about literature, publishing, and his life as a writer. In this show, he gives a very precise explanation of narrative hooks. These live half-hours were fun and very lively and seemed to resonate with our audience. One more thing, there are several of these programs in the can. If people want to hear more of them, please write me at richard at kpfa.org. The intro theme you'll hear in a moment was written and created by New York musician Warren Sirota and replaced science fiction double feature from Rocky Horror as the show's focus turned toward noir fiction. Later, when the name Probabilities was dropped in favor of Cover to Cover, as part of a move toward strip programming by the station, the theme music of the show changed to a solo guitar piece by Matthew Montfort, leader of the group Ancient Future, and that music is still used today on both Bookwaves and the remaining Cover to Cover shows. This is Probabilities. I'm Richard Walensky, and it's our live review program. With me in the studio, Richard A. Lupoff, back from a uh, vacation in New Orleans <laughs> with some books that he read on the way, and Shelley Singer, back from, uh, what was that, a, a high school reunion? High school reunion, yeah. High school reunion. Ready to review more books herself. I think the best place to start is with a mystery novel. So you have a mystery novel to review right on top there. I see it right there. Mm, I've got three of them, as a matter of fact. Three that I actually liked. It, it's a miracle. Uh, the first one I want to talk about is White Butterfly, an easy Rollins mystery by Walter Mosley. I had not read Mosley's earlier books, and now I'm going to. Just briefly, the story. Uh, somebody's killing women. It's 1956 Los Angeles. Several women have been murdered. And then a white woman gets murdered and the cops get moving. And not only do up they to, get moving. Pardon me. Up to this point, all the victims have, have been, been. Have been black, yes. Okay. Uh, the cops get moving. And they come to Easy Rollins, Mosley's detective, and force him against his will, really, um, having various things on him, to help them with the case. So that's essentially the story. He gets uh, out into the streets in some pretty unpleasant places and uh, solves these murders. The white woman who was murdered was supposed to be some kind of dream person. Uh, she turns out to be rather a nightmare. The whole book turns out to be rather a nightmare, but a magnificently written one. I had trouble with the character at first. At first, I hated him. I wanted to strangle him. Then I began to feel enormously uh, emotional about him, and then I loved him, despite the, the totally destructive way he was living his own personal life. The, the writing is absolutely magnificent. It's the characters, I think, are going to stay with me for months, which is something that rarely happens. Uh, Easy Rollins himself is, is a very painfully drawn 
uh, character. I wanted to read a very brief, brief piece uh, from the book, just a paragraph. He's talking about his, uh, his home life. I didn't say another word to Gabby Lee. She went around the house sullenly hating me like she hated all men, but I couldn't blame her that morning. It seemed like I was on the warpath against women and that all the men I knew and those I didn't know were too. I treated Marla like a piece of meat. I wasn't honest with my wife and I yelled at my baby. Somebody was going around killing women and the police hardly cared until a white girl got it. I wasn't even sure that they cared about her. The writing is consistently this good. He is He's a magnificent writer. I can't wait to read the rest of them. Um, the mystery, the one flaw in the book is that it was not a great whodunit. The solution comes out of sort of out of left field. He hasn't really laid enough groundwork for it, but the book is so magnificent, the characters so beautifully drawn, and the time period, the 50s, so vividly created, recreated, that I really didn't care whether it was a, a valid whodunit or not. White Butterfly by Walter Mosley, published by Norton. Magnificent book. I'm glad to hear that you like it so much. I haven't read the new one yet. I just, as Richie mentioned, just got back from out of town. But um, I did read the two earlier books in this series, and I thought they were absolutely wonderful. The first of them, I believe, takes place in 1944. Mm -hmm. And he moves through that L.A. scene and this particular minority community that Ezekiel Royal right. Rollins lives in, <laughs> making that into easy, I thought was itself worth the price. Especially of since he is not easy. He no, is he's tough, not. He's difficult. Very, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, they're just wonderful books. Mosley's writing reminds me of if you could cross Chester Himes with Jim Thompson, you mm. might get Walter Mosley. He's just wonderful. I agree. And this is the third book. Yes, this is the third book in the series. And the others are. Devil in a Blue Dress, and I believe Red Death. Tell you in a minute, that sounds right. Yes, A Red Death. So Devil in a Blue Dress and A Red Death. Do you think this is that, that Mosley is bound for a very, very successful career at, at this point? I think he is because the quality, well, I, based on the first two books, uh, he was clearly not a, uh, you know, a flash in the pan because the second one lives up to the first, and based on what Shelley says, the third lives up to... Uh. Okay, so <laughs> that clearly this guy is, uh, he's working from a solid base of talent. He's not just a flash. Walter Mosley, hopefully he will be on tour in the early fall and we will be able to interview him. Oh, I sure in New York. hope so. Sure hope so. Okay, Dick Lupoff, what do you got? Okay, well, um, since we're talking about uh, some hard-boiled writing, I'm going to talk about a hard-boiled writer named Jonathan Latimer. Jonathan Latimer was uh, part of the scene, Black Mask and the other pulps, and then started writing books in the 1930s and on into the 40s. <clears throat> Excuse me. By the 1950s, he um, was romanced away from the printed page and became chief writer on the Perry Mason TV show, wrote 95 Perry Mason scripts. Fifty of them were adapted from Earl Stanley Gardner stories. The other 45 were original stories of their own. So that Latimer's own work as, as an original novelist was truncated. But some of his books are now coming back in print from a little company called International Polygonics Limited. It sounds like some sort of computer firm or whatever. 
But uh, this is a small company in, in New York that has a series called The Library of Crime Classics. And they have recently reissued a couple of Latimer books, The Lady in the Morgue and Solomon's Vineyard. Solomon's Vineyard is of particular interest. It's a very tough and, and very explicit book, which was originally published in 1941 and could not appear in the United States. Apparently the publishers were all, you know, the government didn't crack down. Rather, it was that worst form of censorship, self-censorship. The publishers were scared of it. It was published in England to considerable success, according to a, uh, a bibliographic note in this new edition. The it was published in the United States in an expurgated form under a different title. And then in 1982, a full version came out in the United States, privately printed 326 copies. If you happen to stumble across <laughs> one of these, please let me know. At any rate, it's now available as a as a mass market paperback. It is very, very good. Uh, an introduction by Bill uh, William L. DeAndrea, who is himself a successful contemporary writer, in in the IPL edition, points out certain similarities between this book and Dashiell Hammett's uh, Red Harvest, which was. I believe uh, Hammett's first or second book and was... His first. It was the first. Uh, Solomon's Vineyard does bear certain similarities, but it's by no means copied from. And frankly, uh, I think Hammett peaked later on. And I think that Solomon's Vineyard is actually a better book than Red Harvest. It's a wonderful book. It is very tough. It's about a private eye working on a case in a small town in, in the Midwest. He... Um, Latimer's hero in this book is rather like the Continental Op in that he takes a front name under which he works on this case. We never do learn his real name. He seems to live on booze and cigarettes. The book is, is very, very tough and brilliantly written, moves just like a flash of lightning. It's just wonderful. I recommend it very highly. As long as I'm speaking of Latimer, let me mention this other new book of his, that is, new edition of an old book, The Lady in the Morgue, uh, takes place in Chicago. It's a sort of um, mystery comedy, uh, a, a, um, a story of bizarre errors. This is an, actually was written and published, first published in 1936, so it predates Solomon's Vineyard. Again, the people just seem to live on booze and cigarettes, primarily booze. Uh, it's very, very wise, cracky. It's very funny. Uh, the basic theme is one of these, the corpse vanishes, and who was the corpse? The book also involves some social attitudes and uh, use of the language in this, this era. We're talking about, what, 56 years ago. And uh, the modern reader may be a little bit shocked by it. I, I'm going to give you a, a little bit of this. Uh, it doesn't involve the seven forbidden words, uh, but it involves some other language we will find today quite shocking. And I want to point out in advance, I'm quoting for, um, from a 1936 novel. This is not the way Dick Lupoff normally talks in 1992. Um, 
The book opens in the morgue, in the Chicago morgue. And there are a number of people there, some very wisecracking newspaper reporters from the various Chicago papers of the day, our private eye, and a morgue attendant. And to while away the slow hours in the middle of the night, they play a sort of corpse poker, where they divide the bodies into three categories, and each player takes one of the three categories, and then they go through pulling drawers out at random as if they were dealing poker hands. And if it's your category of corpse, you win a dime apiece from each of the other players. When you get to the end of the row of drawers, you total up and you see who wins. Now, how do they divide the corpses? Uh, they have corpses of white males. They have corpses of what he calls with a completely shameless term, buck. If it's a buck, and that's your category, if it's a white male or if it's a woman. And then they get into an argument. What if it's a Mexican? Well, they finally decide that Mexicans will count as whites. And I mean, this, I don't believe that Latimer himself was a monster, a vicious racist or anything of the sort. This was just the common usage in popular culture in 1936. And in 1992, is absolutely shocking. I was sitting on an airplane reading this, and, and the book almost fell out of my hands. I could not believe what I was reading. Uh, I do recommend it. It sounds as if I'm condemning it. I'm not. Uh, I would certainly condemn the attitude if any modern person expressed them. I'd say, wow, I mean, this person is, is, uh, is a time traveler, to say the very least. But as a window onto popular culture of 56 years ago, 56? Yes, 56 years ago. Uh, I recommend Latimer's books. I, very, I already very checked high. your math. You did. I'm <laughs> terrible at math. I'm terrible. Anyway, The Lady in the Morgue, uh, 1936, Solomon's Vineyard, 1941. Both of them reissued in mass market paperback editions by IPL. Highly recommended, but with the asterisk and the footnote, remember you're reading old stuff. It reflects the attitudes of its day, not our day. Great titles. We're on Probabilities. I'm Richard Walensky with Shelley Singer and Richard A. Lupoff, and it's our monthly review of genre fiction. And I'm going to switch genres with the book right here. Dick, you've started to read it. Should I just read this uh, opening? Please do. Okay. Um, I'll mention the name of the book is Steel Beach. The author is John Varley. Varley was a, made a big noise back in the late 70s with uh, a collection that's now out of print of short stories called Persistence of Vision, um, taking place on what he called the Eight Worlds, which is, a, I guess, his universe. Uh, followed it up with a, a, what I guess has come to be recorded as a major feminist trilogy uh, Demon, Titan, and Wizard, and then disappeared from the scene for 10 years, and he's back at the age of, I think he's 44 now, and he's back. And this is the opening scene here, and um, I was told that this is okay to say on the air, <laughs> so I'm going to read it as is. Quote, in five years the penis will be obsolete, said the salesman. He paused to let this planet-shattering information sink into our amazed brains. Personally, I didn't know how many more wonders I could absorb before lunch. 
With the right promotional campaign, he went on breathlessly, it might take as little as two years. He might even have been right. Strange things have happened in my lifetime. But I decided to hold off on calling my broker with frantic orders to sell my jockstrap stock. The press conference was being held in a large auditorium belonging to United Bioengineers. It could seat about a thousand. It presently held a fifth that number. Most of us huddled together in the front rows. The Unibio salesman was nondescript as a game show host. He had one of those voices, too, a generic person. One of these days, they'll standardize every profession by face and body type, like uniforms. He went on. Sex as we know it is awkward, inflexible, unimaginative. By the time you're 40, you've done everything you possibly could with our present natural sexual system. In fact, if you're even moderately active, you've done everything a dozen times. It's becoming boring. And if it's boring at 40, what will it be like at 80 or 140? Have you ever thought about that? About what you'll be doing for a sex life when you're 80? Do you really want to be repeating the same old acts? Whatever I'm doing, it won't be with him, Cricket whispered in my <laughs> ear. How about with me, I whispered back, right after the show. How about after I'm 80? She gave me a sharp little jab in the ribs, but she was smiling. Dick. <clears throat> I didn't get nearly that far. I only got through the first <laughs> sentence. Uh, believe me, I, I've got a moderately realistic uh, worldview, and I know most of the words in the English language that the average person knows. And I'm not shocked to hear the proper clinical name for the male organ or the female organ or the church organ. Um, what he's doing there in the opening is called a narrative hook. The idea is that your reader and your editor is your first reader, sees so many manuscripts in the case of the editor, so many published stories in the case of the ordinary consumer, that you're in a constant and very intense competition for the reader's attention. So you have to do something puzzling, sensational, shocking in the first paragraph and preferably in the first sentence to get that reader's attention. Once you've got that the reader's attention, you've got to justify it. You've got to tell an interesting story. You've got to have worthwhile characters. Yeah, Shelley's sitting there <laughs> eh, 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 rolling her eyes and making It's true though, isn't it? Well, but I know it's I mean, we, true. We work at this. It's, it's hard work. Um, what Varley has done in that first sentence is bait a very effective narrative hook. He certainly did get my attention. But I look at that narrative hook from three different viewpoints, that of a critic, that of a professional, that is a novelist myself, that of just an ordinary reader. And what I got from it was the fact that it was a very, very cheap shot. It was a sleazy device, effective, but completely sleazy and cheap. I, the equivalent of it is as follows. Imagine yourself sitting in a symphony hall. There's a large orchestra playing some beautiful pastoral piece. It's very quiet, meditative music. And you're sitting there and your eyes are sort of half closed and you're dreamy and you're listening to the music. And suddenly, this guy jumps up in the middle of the audience, throws off his clothes, begins screaming at the top of his voice, and waves his organ around. Is he going to get your attention? Yes. 
Is this artistically or aesthetically valid? No. Is it even morally or, or ethically correct conduct? I say it's not. And so after reading one sentence of Steel Beach, I closed the book and went on with other and I found more rewarding activities. Well, good for you. Your morality is is laudable. <clears throat> I personally would boycott the publisher who, or all the publishers who who have pushed writers into the kind of competitiveness that that creates that kind of garbage. Uh, I have a little trouble blaming writers, I guess. Well, I read all six hundred, five hundred pages of the book. That means you read four hundred and ninety nine <laughs> three more. quarters yes. more than I did. <laughs> That's correct. Uh, Tell me, I you him more I... time. You or I. <laughs> I wasted more time. I interviewed him while I was uh, while you were on vacation, and uh, Varley is quite good at developing science fictional ideas. He gets away with stuff by throwing in so many ideas that you're reeling from them. Uh, the one thing he never got together in the trilogy, particularly, or in anything else, were were book length plots. All of his best work is short stories. That's reflected here. Uh, he, it turns out, of course, that that's just a cheap, sleazy come on because in point of fact, while the hero starts as a male and winds up having a sex change operation to become a woman later on, which is commonplace in the world that he's created, which is the, the eight worlds that he created like you know 15 years ago. Um, and it is kind of interesting to see how he deals with the change. I don't think he does it very well. The beginning is a cheap shot. It gets you into it. But he he because he forgets about plot because he doesn't know what to do the the plot concerns uh the fact that our hero named Hildy Johnson who's a reporter named after the character in the front page is feeling suicidal and has no reasons to it's eventually traced back to the master computer on the moon like Heinlein uh, in exactly fact in fact <laughs> moon is a harsh <laughs> harsh mistress he is doing a Heinlein number, maybe slightly from the left, but he's doing a Heinlein number. Only unlike Heinlein, John Varley cannot plot. Uh, I think Heinlein also had cheap shots. So to that degree, I think they're, they're, they're similar. I think Varley is a better writer than Heinlein. I think his characterizations are far more um, varied than Heinlein, who couldn't come up with more than three or four. But... In the long run, what you wind up doing is saying, when is the plot going to get going? And on page 400, to bring in an entirely new set of circumstances, when you're really trying to see what's going on with what you've got, it just doesn't work, and it throws you for a loop. Why couldn't he just, or let me put it a different way, could he, in your opinion, have just wrapped it up? At that point, 400 pages is a substantial book. In fact, it's a longer than an average novel right there. Well, yeah, I think what he does is throw in something that's irrelevant um, because he's already set the stage for what he calls the big glitch, which is the big climax event. And the climax event does not have to involve it's people living on the surface of the moon that nobody know, knows about. And he gets to them at page 400. There is no need to do that <laughs> in that book on page 400. The big glitch does not necessarily involve them or could easily not involve them. I wish him well in his career. I think um, he's a great science fiction idea man and this book is not 
the place to start. It's a major disappointment. We have five minutes. Can we do some some quick ones, uh, Shelley? I don't know how quick this one's going to be, but I'll do my best. Um, this one's called The Winter Widow. It's by a writer named Charlene Weir, who is local, uh, published by St. Martin's Press. It was a uh, Best First Traditional Mystery Malice Domestic Award winner. Now, I don't tend to read what are called cozies. I find them much too precious for my view of the world, which is maybe too realistic. I don't know. This one is a very good book. I I found it gripping. The one thing that you do have to do at the beginning is suspend a little bit of disbelief about the main character, who is a, a woman, hard-boiled cop from the uh, San Francisco Police Department who marries a small-town Kansas police chief and moves there. The plot involves his murder and her subsequent appointment as acting police chief against the mayor's wishes and solution of the mystery. Again, as I said, it's it's hard to believe her moving there at all. But uh, once you get past that, uh, the book is very good. Uh, there are some vivid scenes that stay in your mind. And the characters are extremely engaging. Two of the most vivid scenes to me were one in a livestock laboratory where some jerk is trying to produce plastic hay and another where a bull attacks the protagonist and ends up goring somebody else. Vivid picture of, of the bull. Uh, she's a very good writer. This is a very good book. Again, The Winter Widow, Charlene Weir, St. Martin's Press. It's a cozy, but it's slightly harder than most cozies and very good. Well, I got a quickie, quick one here. Um, Dick and I interviewed Anne McCaffrey author of the many dragon books. She's on was on tour, uh, science fiction books, on tour for a book called Damia, a sequel to the best-selling The Rowan. Uh, what is it? Caveat emptor, let the buyer beware, I wrote down, and Dick wrote under that. Caveat lector, let the reader beware. And I think in the case of both The Rowan and Damia, people, uh, a number of people find Anne McCaffrey's books very good, and uh, she's a very popular writer. Uh, I read The Rowan in anticipation, assuming that it would be like the Dragon books, readable, fun, good characterization. It was terrible. No plot. I mean, less plot than the Varley and bad writing, boring, oh, just dreadful. Damia was not much better. Uh, it was curious, given the fact that this is a woman who's been writing for a long time. In the interview, she said, when I mentioned these books, she said, Oh, yeah, well, I had uh, the Rowan sitting around. I wrote it in the late 50s and then followed it with Damia, but we didn't print it. I said, you mean this is before you learn how to write through John W. Campbell? She said, oh, yeah, this is many years before. Uh, what they did was reissued garbage from her trunk. Uh, she made a few changes and additions in both books. The reason the books stink is that she was a kid and didn't know how to write at the time. Third book in the series is new. When it comes out next year, she's writing it from scratch. It'll probably be quite good. But uh, again, caveat emptor or caveat lector, the Rowan and Damia by Anne McCaffrey. Stay away from them. Absolute waste of my time. Gee, I've got some stuff in the trunk they can have. <laughs> <laughs> and Dick, I'm sorry we've run out of time. Oh, we, we have? We have one minute. One minute. Shelley, you want to do a quickie? Oh, this, this book deserves more than a quickie. If you've got a quickie, you can do it. Otherwise, I'll do this one. Oh, boy. Well, okay. okay. 
Go ahead. Time's up. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> Time is up. Really? We can quarrel for one minute as to how we're going <laughs> to right, use this that is, minute. This is going to be another, a rave. A uh, book called "A World the Color of Salt." Is that the end of it? No, no. Go on. A Smoky Brandon Mystery by Noreen Ayers, published by Morrow. <laughs> She's uh, another case of suspended disbelief that turns out to be a very good book. She is a um, forensic specialist who is a former stripper in L.A. No, it's not L.A. It's someplace just north of L.A. Very good book, very good mystery. A young man she likes very much, from whom she buys her coffee and donuts, is murdered brutally, and she gets on the case. And the book is called? A World the Color of Salt, A Smoky Brandon Mystery by Noreen Ayers. Morrow, a first novel and a magnificent one. Also, another wonderful title. Really makes you say, Isn't that a great title? Talk about legitimate narrative hooks Mm -hmm. rather than cheap shots. Yeah, this is good. This is time time enough for probabilities. I'm Richard Walensky with Richard A. Lupoff and Shelley Singer. Next week, uh, reading an interview with the former head writer of the David Letterman show. And so that's next week. And see you next month live on Probabilities. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. And feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>